0: There's right and wrong in parties, and the right is on our side. So mount the Fillmore wagon, and through the nation ride. The Union is our wagon, the people are its springs, and every true American for Millard Fillmore sings. Wait for the wagon, the Millard Fillmore wagon. Wait for the wagon, and we'll all take a ride. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 13, Millard Fillmore, the Know-Nothing Candidate. Looking back now, it's easy to see that in the 1850s, the United States was a dying country. Compromises over slavery that had always meant to just kick that can of controversy down the road were creaking and collapsing under their dead and rotten weight. The nation's two political parties, the Democrats and the Whigs, they were dying too, and for the same reason. When they'd been created, Democratic Party founder Martin Van Buren saw national parties as a way to control the national debate, to steer it away from slavery. But that premise had failed. Both parties would fracture along north-south lines in the 1850s as their pro- and anti-slavery elements decided their differences were greater than their commonalities. The Whigs would die first, and when they did die, their last president, Millard Fillmore, would latch on to a bold and energetic new party, a party with powerful messaging that still resonates today a party he thought could last 200 years and become the great future rival of the Democrats. And if you're thinking, yeah, it's time for the Republicans and their platform of opposition to slavery and equality for all, well, you've got another thing coming. Today we learn about the American Party, a party of anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic bigots who grew from a hate Fueled secret society to almost take over the American experiment. And we'll learn about the one-time president who thought they could make him president again, Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore was born on January seventh, 1800, to an impoverished family in central New York. And his life basically plays out like the traditional American rags-to-riches story. A poor youth who pulls himself up by the bootstraps to realize tremendous fame and fortune. But in the case of Fillmore, the story also frequently derails into racism and bigotry. Fillmore hated the manual labor he knew he was destined for if he couldn't get an education. So he began working at a law firm where he could learn while he worked. When he felt he'd learned enough, he returned to his hometown to establish a law practice before eventually moving to Buffalo, New York. And his timing here was really good. The Erie Canal had just opened, turning Buffalo into a boom town overnight as goods from Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin traveled across the Great Lakes and down the canal to reach the port at New York City. And while trade was traveling east, Investors and immigrants were traveling west. There was a lot of work to be had in Buffalo for a young lawyer. But then he started getting tugged toward politics. And not for any grand aspirational reasons, but more because, well, Fillmore's kind of a putz. In 1827, when Fillmore was 27 years old, a group called the Anti-Masonic Party was a growing force in New York state politics. These were people who were largely anti-Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson and a large number of his Democrats were Masons, so people who opposed Jackson and the Democrats tended to be anti-Mason too. So who are the Masons, and why didn't people like them? Well, the Masons are a secret society that can be traced back to Europe, where they'd been founded by stonemasons. They had secret handshakes and secret rules, and sometimes they liked to hang out and, I don't know, probably get drunk together. And if the idea of a secret society sounds fun, well, that's basically why people joined. It was a social club that made members feel like they were important and that they had status, because they were in and everyone else was out and, like, totally lame. The Masons had existed in the United States since the country's founding. George Washington was a Mason. And, though they were very secretive about their group's purpose and activities, as best I can tell, it really was just a bunch of guys who thought it was fun to belong to a secret club. But, well, as you can probably remember from the grade school playground, it's not fun to not be included. Non-Masons were pretty suspicious of Masons, especially as Masons kept getting prominent government roles and enjoying success in business. There's Two ways of looking at the anti Masons. If you're feeling negative, you can say they were a bunch of jealous losers who were tired of being left out. If you're feeling positive, you can say they were anti egalitarians who thought that nobody was better than anybody else just because of their social class. Quite a few anti Masons would later become leading abolitionists as a result of this second belief. So, This is kind of simmering there in the 1820s when in 1826, a New York Mason named William Morgan publicly announced he was going to quit the group and write a book revealing all its secrets. And then he showed up dead, which really was not a good look. This sparked the anti-Masons to jump from grumbling about being left out to actively rooting out Masons and banishing them from American political life. Miller Fillmore attended a couple anti-Masonic conventions and decided to ride that paranoia to being elected to the state assembly on an anti-Masonic ticket in 1828. And I'm not sure this is just a coincidence for Fillmore, him being attracted to politics like the the anti-Masons. His political career is going to be defined by scapegoating minorities. The anti-Masons will collapse as a political movement pretty quickly, uh, after the Masons abandon their organization in droves, pretty much as a result of this. And Fillmore will switch his allegiance to the Whig Party, where at least he can still be an anti-Jackson man. But when similar paranoia-based political movements sprout in the future, oh man, Fillmore will be so down. Now, the next couple of decades of Fillmore's career are pretty darn dull. So I'm going to skip over him. In short, he slowly rises his way up the Whig party in New York State, two steps forward, one step back. And he'll frequently feud with a fellow New York Whig named James Seward, who will basically be Miller's perpetual rival and later serve as Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state. Another fun thing about Seward is he was born in the village of Florida in Orange County in New York State which I found delightful and had to share. Anyway, as Fillmore slowly developed his career, he made sure to blame any setbacks on Catholics and immigrants. And this blame became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy for Fillmore. Something would go wrong for him, and he'd give a speech about how everything is the Catholics and immigrants' fault, and then they would vote against him because he was literally just promising to screw them over if he won, and then he'd suffer another setback because they voted against him. This guy will just never learn. And that pretty much takes us to the Whig Party Convention of 1848, and this is where our story really starts taking off again. The Whig Convention of 1848 is the convention that nominated Mexican-American war hero Zachary Taylor, all rough and ready, to be the party's presidential nominee. It's also the convention that will put Fillmore, in the vice presidency. Once Taylor had secured the presidential nomination, it was time for the party delegates to nominate a vice president. And since Taylor was a military man from the South with dubious Whig credentials, I mean, there was some debate about if he was really even a Whig, the party decided it needed a Northerner with impeccable Whig credentials to balance the ticket, which meant the obvious candidate was Thomas Ewing. That's right, Thomas Ewing. And you might be asking, who is Thomas Ewing? Well, he was a former U.S. Senator and Secretary of Treasury from Ohio who everybody basically loved. Or, well, almost everybody. Because, unfortunately for Mr. Ewing, who was not present at the convention, one of the members of the Ohio delegation had a personal vendetta against him that, It it seems like nobody seemed to know about this thing. So right before the balloting for vice president began, this other guy who hates Ewing decides now is the perfect time to stick it to Ewing. He stood up and announced he'd just received word that Mr. Ewing wanted his name to be withdrawn from consideration. Of course, Ewing wanted no such thing, but nobody at the convention knew that, so they took this other guy for his word and nominated Millard Fillmore instead. (laughs) And that's why today's episode is about Millard Fillmore, who, uh, by the way, also edged out that New York rival William Seward for the vice presidency. Take that, Seward! And then Zachary Taylor won the election of 1848 and named William Seward to the prestigious position of Secretary of State. Damn it, Seward! The Taylor presidency and the Fillmore vice presidency began in 1849 and was a terribly awkward time for Millard Fillmore, which he probably blamed on minorities. Fillmore was quickly reminded that the vice president is, as John Adams put it, quote, The most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived. Fillmore had zero influence on the administration. Even worse, his rival Seward became one of Taylor's most trusted confidants. There are probably three reasons Seward quickly eclipsed Fillmore in the administration. First, there was that well-established history of presidents totally ignoring their vice presidents. Second... Seward was a much more savvy politician than Fillmore. And third, Fillmore disagreed with Taylor on the biggest issues of the day, which we're going to get more into in a minute. Fillmore went so far as to tell Taylor that he would use his tie-breaking vote in the Senate to oppose legislation Taylor favored if it came down to that. But it did not come down to that, because on July 4th, 1850, President Zachary Taylor had a snack of cherries with an iced glass of milk, drank a lot of probably tainted water from the good old D.C. sanitation system, got sick, and died five days later. And that means it's time for Millard Fillmore to step in as president. And so... On July 9th, 1850, 50-year-old Millard Fillmore, the rags-to-riches lawyer and vaguely bigoted New York politician who is shaping up to be another entirely forgettable vice president, was sworn in as the 13th president of the United States after the death of his predecessor. But what did the world and the country look like when Fillmore became president? Let's look around. Internationally, French troops had just invaded the Papal States to reinstall Pope Pius IX, which seems like a fun bit of drama to read about someday. Um, a British guy named Joseph Swan had recently begun developing the light bulb, and uh, Louis Pasteur and Marie Laurent married in Europe. Uh, That last one's actually really important, as this husband-wife team of scientists will develop the principles of vaccination and pasteurization in the years to come. Domestically, the United States appeared on the verge of disunion. The U.S. had acquired all of modern California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and much of Colorado and Texas from Mexico and the Mexican-American War just a couple years earlier, And then gold had been discovered in California just as the war was winding down. 100,000 Americans participated in a mass migration across the continent in search of that California gold. These so-called 49ers soon clamored for a state government to bring order to the region and organized a hastily called convention, that unanimously agreed the new state should be free of slavery because nobody, not even the settlers from the South, wanted to compete with slaves in the California gold mines. New Mexico was asking for a similar ban on slavery, and Southern politicians in Congress were livid. And Northern politicians did not want to give an inch, as anti-slavery attitudes had solidified in the North. 73-year-old Henry Clay, the great compromiser who had saved the Union from similar disagreements in 1820 and 1832, put forth one final compromise, the Compromise of 1850 in January. But it was defeated when it came to a vote in Congress. And uh, I misspoke about this next bit in my previous episode when I said Congress went into recess after this. They stayed in session But Clay did not stick around for the rest of it. Old and discouraged, the Great Compromiser gave up and went home right around the time of Taylor's death in July. So, in July 1850, the Compromise is dead. Taylor is dead. Clay has given up and gone home. And delegates are gathering at a secessionist convention in the South to vote on disunion. It fell to Fillmore. To save the day. And he totally didn't. On one of Fillmore's first days in office, Zachary Taylor's full cabinet, including Fillmore's old rival, William Seward, came to Fillmore with resignation letters in hand, and this was a formality. They all expected to be retained. But Fillmore shocked them by accepting their resignations and firing the whole lot on the spot something no accidental president had done before or has done since, because it's stupid. When Fillmore cut all those guys loose, he didn't have anyone in the wings ready to replace them. And when he started offering these jobs to other people, I mean, some of them said no. So in July and August of 1850, with Southern secessionists planning a convention to discuss disunion, the federal government was essentially adrift because Fillmore was still scrambling to build a cabinet. It was just him, this sad and angry man, alone in the White House with nobody to help him. If the United States was going to be saved, it was going to have to be saved by somebody else. Enter Stephen A. Douglas. In 1850, Stephen Douglas was a first-term senator from Illinois who was about to become the single most important man in 1850s American politics. As a series of failed presidents would come and go, Douglas alone will attempt to pick up Henry Clay's mantle as the Great Compromiser and, less successfully, try to hold the country together. And it starts with the Compromise of 1850, A six-plank effort to resolve the crisis and save the Union. With Clay out of the picture, and Fillmore still trying to build his cabinet, Douglas got to work during the summer of 1850 tinkering on Clay's compromise bill and looking for ways to get it passed. Ultimately, he decided the bill would be easier to pass as six separate bills for its six separate planks, Because while a majority couldn't be found for the six planks bound up together, each individual component could get just enough support to pass a loan. Two months after Fillmore took office, September 1850, the compromise bills began passing in pairs and heading to Fillmore's desk, where the new president signed them all, an act his predecessor, Zachary Taylor, had vowed not to do which means it's time to dive back into the Compromise of 1850, what it was, and why it was supposed to save the Union. Plank 1. California would be admitted as a free state. This was pitched as a point for the North, but really was probably inevitable at this point. Plank 2. The rest of the land taken from Mexico, including New Mexico, was organized as a territory with no restrictions on slavery. This was a point for the South, especially considering the New Mexico Territory was asking for slavery to be banned there. Plank 3. Texas gave up its claim to half of New Mexico. This was a point for New Mexico, which didn't want to be ruled by Texas, which was really far away, and where slavery was 100% legal. Plank 4. The federal government paid off Texas's entire $10 million Pre annexation debt, basically in exchange for denying the state's highly questionable claim to New Mexico. Point for Texas. Plank five. The slave trade was abolished in Washington, D.C., but slavery was preserved as legal, so let's call it a wash. Plank six. The most controversial one. Congress passed a new Fugitive Slave Act. This was a big, big point for the South. Add that up, and it looks about even with maybe a slight advantage to the South. But if you lift the hood on the Fugitive Slave Act and read what it does, you realize that holy smokes, this is crazy! And because Fillmore is going to spend the rest of his presidency trying to enforce it, we're going to go ahead and pop that hood and look at what it did. Are you ready? Because this stuff gets pretty nuts. The Fugitive Slave Act established commissioners in every county in the country who were empowered to hear fugitive slave cases and call up forces to catch runaway slaves whenever slave catchers showed up asking for assistance. Further, the commissioners could be held personally liable if they failed to capture any escaped slaves in their county. We talk today right now, 2021, about how hard it is to hold police accountable through lawsuits. Just Google Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, and I mean seriously, do it. Make a note to yourself to Google Castle Rock v. Gonzalez after this episode is done. It's crazy. Well, 170 years ago, you could easily sue a federal marshal who didn't recover your escaped slave. But wait, there's more. Way more. The act established a $1,000 fine for aiding or harboring fugitive slaves. Technically, a poor northern farmer could be fined $1,000 for giving a cup of water to a black man on the side of the road if it was later proven that that man was an escaped slave. Given that there were 150,000 African Americans in the North at this time, if you did anything nice for any of them, you'd put yourself at risk of a $1,000 fine if it was later found they had once escaped slavery in the South. The act also said that if a black person was captured and accused of being an escaped slave, they could not file a writ of habeas corpus, which is basically a constitutionally protected right to demand to know why you're being detained and then be freed if the reason wasn't lawful. So, I mean, they're just totally throwing out the Constitution on that point there. The act also said the only proof needed to legally capture and accuse an African-American of being an escaped slave was that they matched a written description of an escaped slave that had been sworn before a Southern judge, which, well, I mean, matching a description on a piece of paper sounds pretty darn limp to me. The act also said that if a black person was captured and accused of being an escaped slave, they would be tried in front of a judge with no jury. The judge alone made the decision, and the accused person was not allowed to testify in their own defense. And that brings us to the last big point, and this truly takes the cake. If the judge ruled that the detained person was a free man and should be let go, the judge was paid $5 for their time. If the judge ruled the detained person was an escaped slave who had to be returned to the South, the judge was paid $10 for their time. As in, that's right, judges were paid twice as much if they sent accused African Americans down into slavery versus saying they were free. And I want you to keep this law in mind the next time anyone says the South's arguments over slavery were only about states' rights. Because this law, which the South had been demanding for years, directly violated Northern states' rights by forcing Northerners to help the South recover escaped slaves against the wishes of those Northern states. The South and really any politician, is only going to support states' rights when it benefits them in that specific moment, and they're going to demand the suspension of states' rights when it benefits anyone else or gets in their way. Anyway, this act did more than anything to radicalize the North against slavery and prime it to be willing to fight a civil war. And Millard Fillmore basically staked his whole presidency on the vigorous enforcement of this act. Stories quickly spread across the north of black men who had escaped slavery decades before being kidnapped, put before a judge, and deported back to the south before any friends or neighbors could come to their defense. Families were torn apart. Mothers and fathers were taken from their children, people were outraged, and acts of spontaneous disobedience began breaking out across the North in opposition. For example, in 1851, one of the first black men seized under the law was freed when the courthouse he was being held in was rushed by 30 men who seized him and smuggled him safely to Canada, which super pissed off Millard Fillmore. When an abolitionist convention was held in Syracuse, New York, Fillmore ordered one of the delegates who was an escaped slave to be captured under the law and sent south. After the man was detained, a mob of 5,000 abolitionists surrounded the courthouse and demanded his release, an experience that only empowered the abolitionists to further acts of disobedience. In 1851, Fillmore demanded 41 men be put on trial for treason, the largest treason trial in American history, after they refused to join a commissioner's posse summoned to capture a slave under the law. A defense lawyer quipped during the trial, Did you hear? Three harmless, non-resisting Quakers and and eight-and-thirty wretched, miserable, penniless Negroes, armed with corn cutters, cobs, and a few muskets, and headed by a miller in a felt hat, without a coat, without arms, and mounted on a sorrel nag, levied war against the United States. Blessed be God that our Union has survived the shock. In short, the North's reaction to Fillmore's fanatical enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act was basically, well, if this is the hill you want to die on, be our guest. And all his support in the North was lost. Which begs the question, why did Fillmore support a law that was so thoroughly hated in the region it applied to? In short, to appease the South. There's two ways we can look at this. One, he was trying to appease the South so it would support his re-election. Two, he was trying to appease the South to prevent secession and civil war. If it was the second, it worked for a little bit. If it was the first, it didn't really work at all. A growing class of Southerners had been clamoring for secession since James Calhoun first prompted the nullification crisis in 1832. Something we first talked about in episode 7 on Andrew Jackson. And even now, as Fillmore vigorously enforced the Fugitive Slave Act, these Southerners were still saying the North wasn't doing enough. They were furious about California being admitted as a free state and demanding further expansion of slavery into even more federal territory than what the Compromise of 1850 had offered. In short, They wanted the Compromise of 1820 nullified so slavery could expand into all the land of the former Louisiana Purchase. But, well, this was unreasonable. And it's not just me saying that. Even a majority of the South in 1851 thought this was unreasonable. The Fugitive Slave Act had been a huge get for the South. These so-called moderates said, let's stay in the Union and continue to fight this out politically. And a funny thing happened in the off-year election of 1851. In Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, you saw a realignment of the old Whig and Democratic Party lines behind new pro-secession or pro-Union candidates. The pro-secession candidates were generally radical Democrats like Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederacy, while the pro-union candidates were a mix of moderate Democrats and Whigs. In 1851, the pro-union vote won big time, but I don't think it's the right interpretation to say the Compromise of 1850 had succeeded. I mean, sure, secession did not happen now but like every compromise before, it just kicked that can down the road. And at this point, we are close to running out of road. So, like I said, if preventing disunion was Fillmore's goal in supporting the Fugitive Slave Act, then he bought, like, ten more years. But if re-election is what he hoped for, well, all he had managed to do was make sure that no Whig would ever be elected again. In the 1852 Whig Convention, the South had Fillmore's back as he sought renomination for a second term in the presidency. But the North was dead set against him. Northerners were furious about the Fugitive Slave Act and would never support the man who put it in place. They wanted General Winfield Scott instead, old fuss and feathers, the champion of the Mexican-American War who had nearly won the party's nomination in 1840. <laughs> Which was a problem. Because do you remember why he had not won the nomination in 1840? It's because the South had become convinced that Scott was too supportive of abolitionists. So just as strongly as the North refused to accept Fillmore, the South refused to accept Scott. And there was a third candidate in the mix. Fillmore's current Secretary of State, the 70 year old former Massachusetts Senator, Daniel Webster, who had decided to run against the sitting president while still sitting in his cabinet, which is insane. All Webster did was siphon off just enough votes to keep Fillmore from ever getting the majority he needed to win the nomination. And so, these three candidates became trapped in a time loop as the convention voted again and again and again, but kept coming up with roughly the same results every time. 130-ish delegates for Fillmore, 130-ish delegates for Scott, and 30-ish for Webster. Until finally, on the 53rd ballot, Scott got just enough delegates to win the Whig Party nomination. Hooray! But, well, (laughs) the Southern Whigs never really did rally behind him. (laughs) And most Northerners never really did forgive the party for the Fugitive Slave Act. So when the 1852 general election rolled around, Scott was destroyed 254-42 to in the Electoral College, winning just four of 31 states. As is our custom, let's take a quick look around the country and the world to see how it changed during Fillmore's presidency. Domestically, we are hitting the peak era for the Underground Railroad, a secret network of safe houses that helped escaped slaves flee to the north. Harriet Tubman, who had escaped slavery in 1849, began her career as an underground railroad operative after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. She made 13 trips to the South over the next 10 years, freeing more than 70 people. She would later work as an armed scout and a spy for the Union during the Civil War. She's kind of a badass. Uh, Also, I should have mentioned this back in the Polk episode, but there was a huge moment for the women's rights movement in 1848, so right before Fillmore became vice president, when the Seneca Falls Convention was held in New York State. This is considered by some to be the start of the American women's rights movement, a movement that still to this day is fighting for equality between the sexes. Territory-wise, California earned statehood in 1850, and on the invention front, the world's first dishwasher was patented in New York. It was a wooden box with a handle you cranked to pour water on dishes, and it didn't really work, but hey, it was the first dishwasher patent. Internationally, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, Louis Bonaparte, seized power in France through a coup in 1851. He'll never come close to matching his uncle's ability in anything, but he will invade Mexico, set up a puppet government there, and support the Confederacy during the Civil War. So (laughs) get ready for all that. Also, the first ever World's Fair was held in London in 1851. So, as Millard Fillmore left the White House, he basically left the Whig Party burning in ashes behind him. But he wasn't done with presidential politics just yet. Over the next four years, he would latch on to the former secret society-turned-political party called the American Party, that basically ran on a platform of immigrants and Catholics can go to hell. So get ready for some good old-fashioned bigotry, the Know-Nothing Party is here. First, some background. Anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant groups had sprouted up here and there pretty much since the 1830s, but they never really gained much traction because there weren't a whole lot of Catholic immigrants coming in yet. That changed in the 1840s, when a potato famine and a wave of violent revolutions and counter-revolutions swept Europe turning a trickle of about ten to 100,000 immigrants each year to a flood of 2.9 million. Some cities, like New York, saw immigrants become 50% of the total city population. That's when anti-immigrant sentiment started transforming into a political force. In 1849, an anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic secret society formed in New York under the name Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. But if you know anything about secret societies, the first rule of secret societies is don't talk about secret societies. When members of the order were asked what they knew about it, they replied, I know nothing about that. And the Know-Nothing name took hold and stuck. Over the next few years, as the Know-Nothings grew larger, they changed their official name. They dropped the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner, which is a bit of a mouthful, and with zero sense of self-awareness or irony, became the Native American Party. (laughs) Which, wow, a bunch of anti-immigrant white dudes calling themselves the Native American Party. That's ridiculous. So they shortened their name to the American Party in 1852. The party's official slogan was, Americans must rule America. And the platform called for restrictions on immigration, a ban on immigrants holding elected office or voting, and a 21 year residency requirement for acquiring citizenship. By 1855, the Know Nothings were a major political force in the United States. Nearly a quarter of Congress belonged to the party and they held significant power at the state and local level, too. And that's when Fillmore, who had never met an immigrant he couldn't blame for his problems, joined the party as its presidential candidate in 1856. But there was another opposition party that was also growing from the fallen nurse log that was the old Whig party. The Republican Party. These guys were a much more informal coalition of anti-slavery advocates who were not at all okay with the nativist streak of the know-nothings. And they nominated John C. Fremont, a scoundrel and explorer who was involved in seeing California from Mexico during the Mexican-American War, as their 1856 presidential nominee. So as the election of 1856 approached, we had a three-way race between the Republican Fremont, the know-nothing Fillmore, and the Democrat, James Buchanan. I don't think anyone thought the know-nothings or Republicans would beat the Democrats yet, but everyone knew that this election would determine which upstart party would replace the Whigs as the Democrats' main rivals, possibly for the next 200 years. And Fillmore wanted that future to belong to the Know-Nothings. But, thankfully for American history, the Know-Nothings ended up being destroyed by the one issue they tried to ignore. Slavery. The party had no official stance on slavery. And so, when Southern delegates proposed a party platform that supported slavery at the Know-Nothing National Convention the northern delegates balked and walked and joined the anti-slavery Republican Party instead. And here's the thing about running a party of hate. Yes, hate is a powerful motivator. But everyone you direct your hate against is going to be motivated as heck to vote against you. In addition to losing the abolitionist vote, the know-nothings were never going to win the Catholic or immigrant votes. The final result in 1856 was 17 states and 1.8 million votes for the Democrat James Buchanan, 11 states and 1.3 million votes for the Republican John C. Fremont, and one state and 900,000 votes for the know-nothing Fillmore. So it was a bit of a near thing, but Fillmore was just barely prevented from establishing a nativist and bigoted party as one of the nation's two premier political ideologies. Thank goodness we would never have to deal with any of that stuff again. (laughs) And that was that for Fillmore and the Know-Nothings. Fillmore's performance had proved the Republican Party would be the Democrats' opposition party of the future. And in 1860... Abraham Lincoln would win its nomination and go on to become possibly our greatest president yet. Fillmore's final years would largely be lived quietly and off the radar. He'd support the Union during the Civil War, but would oppose the war itself, calling it expensive and destructive. More than a few would accuse him of being a Southern sympathizer, because he kind of was, but he largely was so quietly. On March 8, 1874, Fillmore died of a stroke in Buffalo, New York, at the age of 74. His final words were reportedly, The nourishment is palatable. He'd just been eating some soup. So, if anyone ever asks you to name three things about Millard Fillmore, I would suggest 1. He only became president because Zachary Taylor died. 2. His zealous enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act, which was a totally crazy law, killed the Whig Party. And three, his last political act was to run for president as the nominee of the bigoted and nativist Know-Nothing Party, which died after his failure. So, what can we learn from Fillmore? How about the power of hope over hate? As the last president of the Whigs and the lone presidential candidate of the Know-Nothings, Fillmore ran two once-powerful political parties into the ground by campaigning on messages of exclusion, fear, and hatred instead of messages of inclusivity, love, and hope. The party that ultimately rose from this period, the Republicans, would be led by a man who, in his first inaugural address, spoke of the better angels of our nature. It wasn't an easy struggle, but in 1850s America, hate lost and compassion won. And that, I hope, is the lesson we can draw from Millard Fillmore. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, Please tell a friend about the show, then subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear you're enjoying the show. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who has already signed up to support the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Old Army Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was Millard Fillmore by Paul Finkelman. And in our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of Franklin Pierce, the man who will turn to Fillmore and say, Hold my beer! America's Descent into Chaos isn't done yet. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.